And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, December 19th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the National Defense Authorization Act moves a lot of chess pieces. We'll have analysis. Plus, a preview of what commerce hopes to do with a new data strategy. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, just about one year ago, Joe Lewis took the plunge into the senior executive service. It was both a leap of faith and the fulfillment of a career dream. Lewis, who joined the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as its chief information security officer last January, tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller what he learned during his first year and what others should keep in mind as they move into the senior executive service. I applied for this position back in June, interviewed in August. I think I was approved by OPM for uh, SES certification back in early December of last year. And so my actual first day on the job was the 1st of January, 2023. And so in that three to four month period, I was doing transition with my predecessor, learning about the organization to the extent that you can before starting the, uh, the the job officially. What a lot of people don't realize is most SES positions, they heavily favor that there's a five-page resume format that um, covers both the ECQs and any what's, what's called MTQs, mandatory technical qualifications for a position. And so it's a fixed format. It has very, very specific guidelines. And then in that, you build in how you meet not only the ECQs, but some of the sub-competencies that exist there as well. And so first and foremost, if you're at all considering an SES position, I would highly recommend searching out that five-page resume format and then working from that. And in many cases, uh, a lot of people hire writers to work on these five-page resumes because they're so hyper-specific. And they individually need to be tailored to the position you're applying to, much like every other federal job application that you do. So that was kind of qualifier number one, was getting that five-page resume, making sure I could demonstrate that I could pass the ECQs as well as hit the technical competencies that were required. And then you just kind of apply like everybody else. Uh, I know a lot of people think that SES is all about who you know, but I was a cold applicant off the street. As far as CDC uh, knew, I was, you know, Joe off the street. And so I applied and then there is a review of the resumes by an executive board. And the executive board determines whether or not you have, you meet the criteria to that would potentially pass OPM certification. And only those that have the potential get referred to the hiring manager. And so I applied in June. In early August, I got a note that I had exceeded the qualifications by the executive review board. And then I was referred to the hiring manager. About a week and a half later, I had my first interview. It was a, a panel interview and uh, it was daunting to say the least. Being able to have one, to demonstrate core competencies from the ECQ perspective, but also demonstrate that I had the technical prowess and the the right perspective to be an executive was a real challenge. I would later find out that two of the people of the two of the three people on my panel would are peers at other agencies. And so uh, it was like staring down the the barrel of a very long gun. But uh, I guess it went well because I got invited back for a second interview, completed the second interview. And then I was asked to have a conversation with the chief operating officer of the CDC which I did a, a few weeks later. And then much like everybody else, I got a tentative job offer that let me know that I'd been tentatively selected. But the difference between the executive side and the GS side is 
the tentative selection starts the process by which you write your ECQs, you do all these other things. Well, all of your internal approvals have to be done first before they'll ever send your package to OPM, right? And so there were numerous hurdles I'm sure you can appreciate in the federal space. Now add maybe two or three layers of complexity for the executive side with executive compensation review boards and all these other things that had to be done beforehand. And finally, finally, my ECQs um, were sent to OPM and I got certified on the on the first pass. I will tell you that writing ECQs is no picnic. Plainly put, writing ECQs is almost like uh, taking credit for the entire class's worth of schoolwork when you're in fifth grade, right? So you cannot mention that you were on a team. You can't mention the contributions of the others that were participating. It's almost like you have to take credit for all of it. And it's really, um, it, for me, it almost felt disingenuous that I couldn't acknowledge the inputs and the, the the successes of the team, but that's not what it's about. It's very much about you telling your stories on how you meet or exceed the executive core qualifications. And, and it's, it's a really challenging process. In this case, I absolutely hired a writer. Okay. Now the way the writing works with the ECQs, um, you meet with a consultant. I actually had drafts of my ECQs written. So I provided those first. And this is really about telling stories and each ECQ, you want to tell two specific stories about how you meet or, or met or exceeded the core qualifications for the ECQ. So I provided my first draft, the writer read them, and then they came back and they asked me questions. And it was like an interview. They asked me a ton of questions and then they disappear. And then they call me back and say, we got more questions. And they ask you more questions, more questions and more questions. I think we did this probably three or four rounds before I ever saw the first draft, the first true draft of my ECQs. But when it came out, I was actually, frankly, very impressed because the ECQs were written in my own voice. It's really, really disconcerting, right? Honestly, that they've gotten to know me that well in this period of time that they could write as if they were writing from my perspective. And so we refined, we reiterated, we did some things and then we turned them in. But I'll tell you that the process is expensive. Hiring a writer is not cheap. Without quoting numbers, it was definitely in the thousands of dollars. But you know, you're making an investment at that point. You've already been selected for a position. If you don't pass OPM certification, you cannot accept the job. Right. So for me, I had already got selected for the job. This was my dream job. This was the job I wanted. And so paying the money made the most sense in order to expedite the review as also make sure that I didn't uh, risk losing the position. No, I appreciate the detail. I think that level of detail is really important for folks because it's, it is the whole SES application piece until you've gone through it, you haven't gone through it. And so having somebody kind of detail that we could spend a lot more time on, on, on how you got there, but really I want to talk about now that you're there, let's talk about your first year going in. What did you learn? What were some of those uh, top level things that, that, that worked for you? You mentioned you spent the first 90 to 120 days really being more operational. Once you got through that piece, that's when maybe the real, the real quotes here, SES began. First and foremost, I think that the biggest takeaway from my first year as an executive is I can no longer be the smartest person in the the sheer breadth and depth of information that I would have to know in order to be a subject matter expert on all the areas in which are my responsibility, one could go crazy trying to be the smartest person in the room on all this. Instead, what I think I learned is that not only 
Am I not the smartest person in the room? I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to surround myself with good people that are subject matter experts whom I've developed a bond and trust with that can advise me uh, in order to inform my decision making. And so um, that's probably the first thing, right? You, you cannot, you should not, you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. You need to let that go because otherwise you're a mile wide and a mile deep and, and it's just untenable. The other thing I would say is uh, you need to think very strategically at this level. You know, it's easy to get caught in the hyper tactical. I've got this one problem that I need to solve. Let me, if I just do this one thing and I do that thing, then I can solve that problem. If you're not thinking tact, uh, strategically, that tactical problem, the way you solve it could have negative effects on other aspects across the office, across the agency. In my case, since I'm making decisions at the agency level for, for the cybersecurity of the agency. So thinking strategically is a must. Having good GS-15 branch chiefs or, or direct reports is, is, is another must. One of the questions I'm often asked, and I think this is really good for people to know, is what makes a good GS-15? How do you be a good GS-15 that reports to an SES? How do you help enable an SES as a good as a GS-15? And I'll tell you what I tell people. To be a good GS-15, you need to be able to straddle the strategic and the tactical realm simultaneously. You are operationally focused because your job is to implement, but you also need to not lose sight of the strategic because your decisions have the ability to affect others as well. And so being able to be nimble and go back and forth from that operational to strategic is really, really key, as well as understanding how to build and uh, maintain relationships with your peers, partners, and stakeholders, because if not, you'll never be able to appreciate their equities and how your decisions will affect them. So learning to trust my GS-15s, building that bond of trust, understanding their subject matter expertise, um, and then being okay not being the decision maker on everything pushing decision-making down to the lowest level where it's, a pos where it's possible, um, and then trusting people to do a good job and then holding them accountable if they don't. Joe Lewis, the Chief Information Security Officer of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, reflecting on his first year as a member of the SES. There's more to the interview. We'll have the rest of it at the top of the next hour. Up next, a preview of what commerce hopes to do with a new data strategy. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Commerce Department, one of the government's biggest data hubs, helps inform decisions in and out of government. Now Commerce is working to keep its data relevant in the rise of artificial intelligence. Commerce officials plan to spend much of 2024 developing a new data strategy. For a preview, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Commerce's chief data officer, Oliver Wise. We know that the public expectations are going to change due to the mass adoption of emergent technologies like generative AI and large language models. And I think we have an obligation, a public obligation, we wouldn't be fulfilling our end of the social contract if we didn't do this, to ensure that we are publishing our data in ways so that users of these technologies can reliably use them to derive insights about the world around them from our data. That is a major priority of ours, and we have a new working group, or two meetings in, chaired by Sally Ann Keller, who's the chief scientist at the Census Bureau, and the working group is made up of AI and data management experts from across our department here, the various bureaus of our department. And they're looking into how do we 
publish our data in ways that are not just machine readable. That's the standard of the Evidence Act. So not just machine readable, but also machine understandable so that AI models and the crawlers that serve as their data harvesters can find our data, recognize it as authoritative, and understand what the fields in those data mean, and so that they can be linked to other data about like entities. When I think of agencies that are large and federated in nature, commerce is pretty high up on that list. To think back to the Evidence Act and just kind of the foundational yeah. elements set out there for CDAO such as yourself, you know, I think a big component of that is just making data a strategic asset. From your perspective of where you sit on things, how do you see commerce making good on that overall focus, that overall goal of making data a strategic asset? In terms of our internal posture towards data, we are about to commence a departmental data strategy that's rooted in a few, I'll say three core assumptions, right? Key three points you need to make. One is we're in a competitive posture that we're in a competition with China principally, where I don't want to speak in overly militant terms, but the fields, the domains of that competition are not just military and diplomatic, but principally economic, and will come down to technological innovation. And whoever innovates the other will dominate in the 21st century and beyond. And I think Secretary Ramono made it very clear that that's a competition that America needs to win in order to promote democracy in the digital era in which we find it ourselves in. So you better believe it that our competitors are leveraging data. And then in the case of China, without the constraints of civil liberties to advance their mission objectives of their country and the, and the ruling party there, the CCP. And we have to, as a country, leverage data as a strategic asset as well, of course, wholly consistent with and in a way that advances democratic norms and civil liberties and protection of privacy and equity. We need to do that. Like the, the point of using data is not just because it feels good or it's like the right thing to do is because we're in a race <laughs> that will define how our children and our grandchildren live and how our country standing in the world. So one, we're in a competitive posture. Two, when it comes to the Department of Commerce, in terms of its on a silo by silo basis, you know, when you look across our, our 13 bureaus, we have some of the most data mature organizations in the world. And uh, every American should be incredibly proud of the amazing work happening at places like NOAA, Census, and beyond, BA, really uh, in all of our bureaus. It's really just remarkable work that is going to advance, that is and will continue to advance the interests of our country. But when it comes to the connective tissue of those data silos, we're really quite weak. And it's very hard for our practitioners working in bureaus to work collaboratively towards some shared purpose. And so what we're going to do in our data strategy is very deliberately look not just in the boxes in the org chart, but at the white space in the org chart. And we're going to do deep dives into five cross 
bureau or whole of department topics where it's really critical for us to have sufficient capacity to meet our business objectives. There's a lot going on in that data strategy. Roughly speaking, when do we expect that data strategy to be released? Not until next fall. So we're going to take the whole of this fiscal year. That's that's where our, our deadline is for that. You mentioned that this is an organization that is rather data mature. This is an organization that has a lot of data experts just among its ranks here. But when it comes to reskilling, upskilling, and hiring the kind of people who have the skills necessary to advance AI in all of its forms or you know the other kind of emerging tech that you guys are following, what's kind of the focus there? What's kind of the priority to make sure that you guys have the skills and the expertise necessary to kind of meet those future challenges, recognizing that you guys are probably ahead of the curve compared to most agencies? Yeah. And when I say ahead of the curve, we're a very heterogeneous organization when it comes to our data maturity. So we're very proud of some pockets of just really unparalleled excellence. But there's a whole lot of areas at Commerce where we have a whole lot of room to grow, right? But in terms of our talent needs, Across the economy, the labor market is tight. Across the economy, data and AI talent, that market is incredibly tight. And then you compound that with the salaries and such that you get in government. It's it's very hard to compete with that talent. But I, I came from the private sector. The company I work for and all of its competitors also had big challenges in terms of attracting and retaining data talent. So this is actually, I, I don't think, unique to government. Yeah, and we had a working group that looked into what our data skills needs were that was already in place when I came in. And the observation they made, and I think it's spot on, is that, you know, there's no one size fits all solution for this. It's not like there's a standard curriculum that every federal employee should take. Like data skills itself is just a a very, very diverse field. And to be honest, it's rapidly changing and rapidly evolving. So if you got a degree just three or four years ago, you have to update that continually to keep up with what's going on in the space, what's going on in the industry. So to me, what data skill development looks like is it's a conversation that that every manager has to have with, with her or his own staff. And it's not something that's like, oh, we need a flyby and we'll get trained everyone up in like three months and then, you know, go off and do something else. It's like professional development and data skills has to be a continuous process. And we should just anticipate that, yeah, you might be an expert now, but there's still a whole lot more to know. And if you have to stay fresh to keep up with your data chaps. Oliver Wise, the chief data officer at the Commerce Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, why the General Services Administration has a busy year coming up. But first, the National Defense Authorization Act moves a lot of chess pieces. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The National Defense Authorization Act, which Congress finished just days ago, moves the marker on several matters peripherally connected to the armed forces, but also in some big defense areas. Covington and Burling attorneys Alex Hastings and Michelle Pierce join me now with their latest analysis. Michelle, good to have you back. Thanks. It's great to be back. Nice to see you. 
And Alex, good to have you in studio as well. Great to be with you. Let's start with the big picture here, because there's a lot of specific provisions throughout this bill. But what fundamentally is Congress and the national security establishment, which informs much of what happens in the NDAA, what are they all saying with this year's bill? Michelle? There is a lot going on in this bill. As I look at the bill, there are some themes that kind of emerge in terms of national security. One theme is it is absolutely critical for our national security agencies to be working more closely and in partnership with industry and private sector partners. So you'll see a lot of provisions in this year's bill that enforce this concept that you cannot, as a government official, a government agency, do your job on some of these really challenging issues and achieve your mission without reaching out to industry and finding ways to partner. So the concept of public-private partnerships are incredibly important in this bill. And you'll see a lot of provisions that either provide for a mandate to establish a public-private partnership in a certain sector, or alternatively, demand that the executive branch develop a strategy that incorporates private industry partnerships. All right. Alex, you're the contracting attorney specialist on this side of the equation, if we call Michelle the sort of the military analyst with her army background. What does this all mean? What should contractors understand about this bill then? So Michelle is right that there is a lot of opportunity here for public-private collaboration with the government, whether it's supply chain or AI. There were, you know, there were we, we heard a lot of opportunities or a lot of places where the you know Congress had de- rigorous debate about some of the provisions in the bill. But what we didn't hear a lot about is a lot of places where Congress agreed on issues, whether it was supply chain vulnerabilities when it came to China and Russia, or whether it was the need to assess opportunities for AI when it comes to DoD applications. These are areas where I think contractors have a lot of opportunity to work with um, counterparts in the DOD, whether it's a public-private partnership, whether it's working with DOD on um, you know a, a series of reporting obligations that the NDAA is going to impose on DOD to try to either bolster the supply chain or incorporate artificial intelligence. So there's a lot of opportunities here, I think, for contractors to get involved um, in, in many of these issues. And there is a specific theme of Pacific deterrence initiatives, but that also takes place elsewhere in the NDAA. For example, I thought fairly significant provision, you can't do business with DOD if in the past five years you've done business with China. And I don't know how many defense contractors that actually affects, but it's kind of a maybe more of a notice to other companies, take your pick. Yes. And there's a series of those restrictions in the NDAA. So there's a there's broad restrictions like that. There's also more specific restrictions that relate to batteries or critical minerals. It really is it's a uh, sort of a warning sign, a warning shot to contractors to look critically both at their supply chains and at their at who they do business with and their ownership structures to ensure that you know foreign influence in their um, in their structure and in their business partners are identified to make sure that you know as these restrictions continue uh, to increase that they're they're aware of them and track them closely we're speaking with Alex Hastings and Michelle Pierce they specialize in defense issues at the law firm Covington and Burling but the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, that is a specific program. The Pacific Deterrence Initiative is a program associated with funding in which 
we provide not just military support, and certainly we allow our military to partner with and then exercise and conduct operations with other friends and allies in the region. It's a stream of secure funding such that those partners can rely on those authorities and that funding as it operates in all those locations jointly and cooperatively with the United States. Got it. In other words, we can have subs and exercises and all kinds of stuff close to China, whether they like it or not. We can train with other militaries, certainly, in that region. And a former uh, chief of naval operations used to say, you know, the tyranny of distance in the Pacific is so incredibly great that if we don't have those types of relationships with our allies and partners in that theater of operations, we simply are not going to be able to do our jobs. Okay. And on that idea of public-private partnerships, Alex, I mean, that's an old idea. They've been talking about that for 50 years. What's different now, do you think, under the NDAA? And are there specific provisions to streamline the inculcation of new technology? Again, something DOD leadership has been talking about for 10 years now. How can we get these faster to deployment, just to simplify it? Yeah, no, it's a good point. Public-private partnerships are nothing new, but I think the emphasis on them and the tools available for contractors and the DOD community um, are new. So, for instance, there's a provision in the NDAA that encourages public-private partnerships for rare earth elements. I mean, rare earth elements right now are coming from Russia and China, by and large, and they need to be near-short or friend-short or domestically sourced. And the NDAA directs DOD to look for rare earth, look for partners who can help source rare earth elements from more friendly sources. So that's a direction that I think ND, hopefully DOD will start to implement. In terms of tools, um, we see what we didn't have, as you said, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was the other contracting authorities. This NDAA does a lot when it comes to OTAs, CRADAs, and others, other uh, contracting authorities like that, which I think really help public-private partnerships that won't fit in a traditional FAR-covered contract. Um, help those uh, partnerships I mean, flourish and really get off the ground. Are these all in the 800 series of provisions, the OTA, and et cetera? Or, yeah, yeah. It, would, it expands them to it more... It expands them to other opportunities. It does. The NDAA also, I mean, it, Congress gives and Congress takes. So it also imposes additional oversight authority over OTAs, uh, suggests that you know there needs to be more performance reviews for OTA recipients and that sort of thing. So we're going to see more oversight of these non-traditional agreements. There's a lot of money flowing through them right now for con- contracts contractors, but there's also more procurement authority there as well. And finally, what about just the basic units of end strength? What does it say about the size of the Army, Navy, Air Force, and shipbuilding, which the Navy has all these multiple plans they would like to pick one and pursue? The critical question with respect to shipbuilding is, do we have enough ships to execute the Navy's mission? There is widespread disagreement on that, but I think, in my view, you know, reassessing based on military operations, both in the Indo-Pacific and certainly in the Middle East right now, is critically important. You know, we should always be reassessing and reviewing those plans and those numbers of ships and capabilities related to those ships and what they deliver. Um, Separately, I also think that as we look forward to, you know, what are we going to anticipate in the coming months in terms of Congress, you're going to see continued emphasis on all of these priorities that we've outlined in this year's bill. We are going to see continued scrutiny of sourcing 
material supplies, um, the numbers of ships, because we, we don't have enough ships right now to execute, you know, missions continuously all around the world. We need more. Um, and in terms of other just mission-critical capabilities related to critical minerals and other supplies, we don't have enough of those. So ensuring that we have a strong defense industrial base is a key objective, not just of the Department of Defense national and national security strategies, but generally speaking, you know, it will remain a, a significant item of interest in the next Congress both from Democrats and from Republicans. There are hardware dollars, though, in that $888 billion. There's plenty to buy stuff at this point. Sure. But how you prioritize those dollars, sometimes there is agreement with the administration and sometimes there is disagreement. And ultimately, in as I have seen the process play out from both working on the defense authorization committees and appropriations committees, we tend to come to compromises and agreement, even when it doesn't appear that that is likely to happen. And we typically work very closely together to get those differences resolved in order to get the bills passed. And if we could just build an aircraft carrier in two years, we'd really be on top of things, huh? That would be remarkable. Michelle Pierce and Alex Hastings are attorneys with Covington and Burling. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks so much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why the General Services Administration has a busy year coming up. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network, an acting commissioner for the Federal Acquisition Service. Two government-wide acquisition contracts to be awarded and a third launched, dealing with the FBI relocation mess. The General Services Administration, you might say, has a lot on its plate as we go into 2024. My next guest says contractors are watching. Federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen joins me now. And, yeah, there's a lot going on for GSA. Let's start with the departure of Sonny Hashmi. You know, Tom, Sonny Hashmi has been the commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service for the last almost three years. And Sonny's done a great job with the strategic view of the Federal Acquisition Service he certainly tried to implement some things that will make the service be more efficient. One of the things most recently is the FAS reorganization plan that just kicked off about a couple of months ago. So great stuff there, trying to make the organization as a whole more transparent. You know, he started the Dead Easy campaign at GSA to make it dead easy for people to do business with the Federal Acquisition Service. And, you know, he put in his time, Sonny's. Before this, he was CIO with another agency in a previous administration. So he's been a great public servant with a good record of service. And, you know, everybody wishes him well in the private sector. And I'm sure none of us have seen the last of him. In the meantime, he is turning over a federal acquisition service that has one or two challenges coming up in the immediate year. And that's going to be something that the acting commissioner, Tom Howder, has to work on. Right. Tom Howder will be, I guess, acting commissioner and there's not quite the flexibility to act as acting as you can when you actually have the permanent role. But the awarding of two of the big contracts, I think, is going to really be important, especially since they've been so delayed by protests. Tell us more about that one. So what we're expecting in 2024, Tom, is the award of the Oasis Plus contract for 
uh, full range of professional services. This would be the follow-on to GSA's wildly popular OASIS contract. OASIS Plus is going to be substantially bigger, both in terms of scope and in number of contractors. The second contract coming up uh, in 2024 should be the Polaris contract, which is GSA's small business IT solutions contract. And that one in particular, Tom, has been beset by protests. In fact, Polaris itself grew out of a previous program that crashed and burned because of protests. So right now, GSA is in the process of asking the original offers to make various updates to their offers based on protest decisions. And I think we'll have those offers analyzed and hopefully awards will come out in 2024. I'm sure there will be some protests on the award and no award decisions, but we're kind of now in the contracting red zone, if you will, on Polaris. So close enough, hopefully, to make it happen. And then Alliance 3 is something you're saying could be put out for bid in the coming months. And that's going to be interesting because Polaris and Oasis Plus got a lot of protest at the solicitation stage. And we don't know about yet the award stage, but it's the solicitation stage that got these things so off course. Could that happen with Alliance 3? It absolutely could happen with Alliance 3, Tom. Alliance 3 will be GSA's major IT government-wide acquisition contract for all kinds of solutions. The Alliant 2 program has been phenomenally successful. Everything points to Alliant 3 just building on that success. But as you point out, uh, they've got to do the 110 protest hurdles. Let's hope it's not 110. You know, check that because 110 meters. But they're going to have to go through the protest hurdle. I think that we're going to see protests on any type of IDIQ contract, Tom, over the issue of how you score past performance on men or protege agreements or JVs, even contractor teams. That seems to be an issue where there's some ambiguity now. I know that not just GSA, but NIH, for example, is trying to nail that one down. I think we'll eventually get there with a series of rulings that set up case law. But Alliant 3, which is on a very tight time frame to get out the door, probably will see some pre-award protests and inevitably post-award, uh, but they're doing the right thing. The Alliant 3 team, they just recently came out with a second draft RFP for people to comment on. So if you take a look at it, you have comments, I would urge people to do that. And if you take a look at Alliant 3 and its draft stage and you say, hey, you know, this is gonna be a stretch for us. There may be no way we can really participate as a prime. That's fine. There's a lot of ways to do business on Alliant 3 and other GWAC contracts as a subcontractor, as a partner. It's not something that you can do right now. It's a reach. Please don't protest it just because it's a reach. <laughs> uh, look for other ways to access your government customer. We're speaking with Larry Allen. He's president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And then this is not going away, though, is the mess and the tangle that the awarding of the FBI headquarters decision to put it in Greenbelt, Maryland. Now that's all tied up. IG report coming, which doesn't necessarily stop the decision, but maybe effectively it will. And this is going to take GSA probably throughout 2024 to resolve, I'm thinking. Tom, I think you're absolutely right. And while this isn't a classic federal acquisition service issue, it is certainly is one for GSA overall. And it's one that is going to be in the headlines, it's going to be top of mind for the Congressional Oversight Committees. We've already had 
couple of congressional hearings that have either focused or touched on this topic of the FBI relocation. You pointed out we're going to have an IG review right now. So this is something that's going to tangle up the senior leadership at GSA, along with the other public building service issues like telework, not just for GSA, but for all government agencies, and what that means in relation to GSA's federal office space portfolio. So whether it's this specific FBI office that certainly is going to take up a lot of political capital and a lot of time of senior management or the telework issue, we're talking about people in the administrator's office focusing a lot on these things, not so much on acquisition and procurement. Yes, and the whole issue of telework and what should the federal real estate bulk be, how much space should the government actually be leasing here, or can they consolidate agencies into existing federally owned building? These questions don't seem to be anywhere near resolved, and it's almost like you have an irresistible force, that is, the administration wanting people to come back into the office, reaching an immovable object, which is people like teleworking and they're not about to give it up. I see that as a low-level simmer again for another year. Tom, I think you're exactly right. And as far as GSA is concerned, not all of these variables, of course, are within GSA's control. They can manage the office space, they can negotiate the leases, they can manage their workforce, but other agency workforces are going to have to be driven by their senior leadership. And there is going to be the tension there. You know, I can't imagine why anybody would mind being in a slug line at Woodbridge, Virginia at five o'clock in the morning. And, you know, it's a great way to meet new people and uh, see a beautiful part of the country way before the sun comes up. Right. But you can't smoke in the car if you're a slug line <laughs> passenger. And that could really be a setback for some people. But, yeah, I mean, and everyone acknowledges the traffic in the DMV has returned even worse than it seen before the pandemic. Nobody knows why, but that's just one of those universal constants. And finally, uh, there is the fact that 2024 is an election year. So transition is GSA's big business operation when there is a transition. If there's a transition, a new administration, we don't know yet. But that's got to start taking some cycles in their thinking also. Tom, it absolutely does. And what GSA has to do and what they do every time there's an election is they set up a transition office for each major party candidate so that that candidate has the office space, it has the supplies, it has the phone lines, it has the IT connections, whatever it is that group might need to get its work done. So even if there's someone way ahead in the polls, GSA is obligated to make sure that they have two transition offices up and ready to go to help that transition take place after the election. It's a little bit less of a pull if you've got the incumbent that wins re-election, but it's a lot more if you've got somebody new coming into the office. And that takes up all of GSA. It's not just space that the public building service does. It's furniture, it's IT, it's support, all of the things that the Federal Acquisition Service does as well. And it's not a lot of stuff that people outside of the agency see, Tom, but if you're in one of the major campaigns or if you're in GSA, you know that the closer we get to election time, the more resources these operations take up. Right. And if the nominee, you know, is Donald Trump, they'll have to have really large dumpsters 
because that's where they like <laughs> that's where they like to put the uh, the briefing books that come in from the agency transition teams, not making any predictions whatsoever. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish our listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, December 19th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the National Defense Authorization Act moves a lot of chess pieces. We'll have some analysis, plus a preview of what commerce hopes to do with a new data strategy. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Joe Lewis joined the senior executive service a year ago with a goal of making change on a large scale. But often, joining the highest ranks of government can end up more about dealing with people and organizational problems than with the aspirational changes SESers seek to make. Lewis is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Chief Information Security Officer. He tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller about how he dealt with organizational inertia. Joining and and becoming a a new SES, I got to tell you, it's challenging. You spend a a vast majority of your career being very, very operationally focused, very, very tactically focused, focusing on the mechanics of getting work done. And the senior executive service is not at all operational. Our job is to be the strategic thinkers and to set the strategic direction for organizations. And so coming into a new agency, coming into an agency as a new member of the senior executive service, I was at a great disadvantage because I lacked the understanding of that operational landscape. And so I would say I probably spent the first 90 to 120 days being far more operational than uh, one would expect for an SES. But it really was my benefit by doing that because it helped me learn very, very granularly where our challenge areas were, where are the areas I should be focusing, how do I develop uh, strategies in order to solve that for the agency. Um, it also helped inform an organizational restructuring that we did on October the 1st, understanding at a very granular level the problem sets, I could then think about how do we 
organize ourselves to facilitate solving some of those, those structural problems. One person, SES or not, is not going to come in and substantially change the, the organization against organizational inertia. So recognizing that organizational inertia is a problem, realizing where you can make your improvements and realizing where your pitfalls are. I think that's, that's like job one figuring out the current state and how, where you can make your improvements. And then also recognizing that we don't have a sphere of control. We have a sphere of influence. I don't control anything. I influence a lot. And so building relationships, establishing trust, being able to meet people where they are, un- enabling the business, that has allowed me to help influence things far greater than any positionality title like CISO or authority authority that comes from FISMA, far greater than any of those things is my sphere of influence and ability to build relationships. Maybe I'm lucky. I, I have dealt far less with some of those kind of, you call them people issues. I mean, I have people issues. We all do. But it's, it's not like, well, this person doesn't like this person or I don't like this person. It's more like, hey, we haven't been able to crack this problem because this group doesn't want to work with this group. And the way you solve that is, okay, let's all meet in the middle. Let's talk about your equities. Let's talk about my equities. Let's all give a little where nobody wins, but we can at least make iterative progress. And again, going back to this idea of I'm not going to make substantial seismic shifts. I would much rather make small, meaningful, iterative steps that longer term, the metaphor I use is this is a big, slow ship. And the only way we're going to turn a big, slow ship is to make meaningful, iterative improvements that will turn us over time in the direction that we want to go. You talk about You'll need to be the smartest person in the room, mile wide, mile deep. How big of a change was that for you? How difficult was that? What did you learn about yourself from that realization that, okay, it's okay if somebody else makes a good decision? In the military, we call this commander's intent, but really it's about understanding where my intent is and then giving people the freedom to operate within the intent, right? It's like giving them guardrails and being less concerned with the how and more concerned with the what. Hey, I need this problem solved. and if I tell you how to do it, then I've undercut your authority. So that's that's not the best way to do it. It's more, hey, go solve the problem. Come back and tell me when it's done and, and focus less on the how. Was that challenging for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Coming from IT and having a heavy technology background, I pride myself on that technological prowess that I bring to bear by having done this work for so long. But I also recognized very, very quickly how quickly the technology iterates how quickly my skills fell out of date and how I would never be able to keep up with the pace given how many different kind of lanes or swim lanes or, or, or technologies that are at play in this space. And then understanding too that the vast majority of my job has nothing to do with technology. It has to do with leadership and strategic management and priority setting and being able to manage resources and deliver on, on strategic priorities. And so it was absolutely challenging for me, but I think I made that that realization as a GS-14, right? Not as a GS-15 or an SES. I made that realization when I gave up my admin rights, when I became a branch supervisor for the first time. I recognized that I was not going to be the guy doing the work. I needed to be able to trust the people that were going to do the work. And every level that I ascended through the organization, that proportion changed even more. A couple other things I just want to hit upon. Number one is the mentor. I think that's a really important piece that I've heard around for any manager. Find someone who can help you understand. How did you find a mentor? Talk a little bit about that relationship that you had. I did not appreciate the value of a mentor until I went seeking one and didn't find one. As a GS-15, I knew I had SES aspirations. I knew that my job at Energy was to be, in my mind, my last GS-15 job. 
I wanted my next role after that to be an SES role. And I inquired with several people about establishing a mentor-like relationship and, and it didn't really go anywhere. That's when I realized just how important that was going to be. All of the things that we talked about very early on about ECQs and understanding the process, a mentor is the person that can help clarify that for you and help make sure that you're ready for that. And I didn't have that. But when I joined this agency, two of the people on my panel ended up being industry peers uh, from other federal agencies. And one of those two, he reached out to me on something completely separate. We got along really, really well. Uh, I set up a meeting with him and I basically just asked him, I said, listen, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. I could benefit from your wisdom and the lessons learned that you have. Would you consider mentoring me in this role? And at that point now, we're industry peers. We're both SES. We're both CISOs. And he was so humbled that I asked that he accepted. And we meet every other week. It, and honestly, it's it, the joke is we're no longer in mentor sessions. We're in collaboration sessions because there's now a bi-directional flow of information that is helpful for both of us. And so, but that mentor role is so vitally important because there are things... I. It is lonely up at the top. Plainly put, the circle of people of the, which I can truly be 100% honest about the, the challenges I face is extremely small, right? I'm not going to go to my boss and complain. I'm not going to go to her deputy and complain. I'm not going to complain to my deputy or my staff because that is completely a possibility. And so to whom do you talk? Who do you share these struggles with? Well, you share them with a mentor and you say, you know, I remember very famously being like, hey, you know, mentor, I've got this problem and I've got, you know, I, I just wish this other person would do this thing and then that would be okay. And he hard stopped me. He says, Joe, that's a you problem. That's not a them problem. And when you take a step back and you look at it, like I needed somebody to tell me that otherwise I was never going to get past it. So yeah, absolutely. Get, get a mentor, get a good mentor. Cause there, there's nothing worse than getting a bad mentor. What advice would you give to folks who are considering applying for SES roles? First and foremost, be honest with yourself. Do you have the capacity, the capabilities uh, to, to do the job? And remember, SES is a billet. It's not a job. You got to think about what's the job you want and can you reasonably do that job? I think that we lack self-objectivity a lot of times. Um, and so really being brutally honest with yourself, I did not apply to an SES position two years before I started when asked to apply because I didn't think I was ready. So I think have that hard conversation with yourself, part one. Part two be prepared to one, spend the money to do it the right way, hire the writer, get the resume, hire the writer, get the ECQs. But three, recognize that in some agencies, there are pre-selections. People know who's going to get that job. And much like every other federal position, you may apply and never hear anything ever again. And so um, it can be a little demoralizing and it can be uh, desensitizing, but uh, perseverance is key. And the last thing I'll say is this, do it for the right reason. Don't join the SES because you want a paycheck increase. Don't join the SES because you get to tell people what to do. Don't apply for SES jobs because you think that it's going to look good on a civilian resume in a few years. Do it because you believe in the mission, believe in the organization, or like for me, do it because you want to make people's lives better. You do it because your sphere of influence grows and you have the ability to make life better for more people. Joe Lewis, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, reflecting on a first year as a member of the Senior Executive Service. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a preview of what the Commerce Department hopes to do with a new data strategy. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.